And Father, because it's our Savior who lives, I pray, Lord, that we would truly be a people who would live for You. So once more, as we open Your Word, I pray that You would guide us in it. That, Lord, it was a blessing of last week, but I pray, Father, that we would push forward in Your kingdom. And so, Lord, we just lift up tonight once more that You would guide us through Your Word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you turn and greet your neighbor? Howdy. with you in a minute. John chapter 6, we'll be picking up at verse 1. It's where we left off before last weekend. Gospel of John chapter 6, we'll be starting at verse 1, and as always on Thursday night, we have an email prayer request, prayer chain at our church. Thursday night, we gather them all together and pray for them one last time. Once again, if you want to be part of the people who pray, or if you have a request you want prayed for, just email Teresa, Mrs. Turin at gmail.com. First one that came across was from my wife. She asked for a prayer for my daughter, my son-in-law, my granddaughter, Jamie, Chris, and Malachi, as they traveled home back to upstate New York. This was, I believe it was last Thursday night, and they made it. They're there, and they're moving forward. Um, she also asked, this was a separate request, for the people who received the Lord on Easter. We had about seven commitments to the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to continue to pray for them. And uh, lastly, we were with her the night before last. Mandy Jackson used to attend our church. Most of you know Chuck and Mandy. Mandy's got colon cancer, and she had some pretty extensive surgery uh, about a week ago. Well, actually now, about 10 days ago. And it's been going really rough, really hard for her. And... Um, the, the doctors finally made some adjustments. Um, we went out there and we got to spend some time with her and pray for her. And she's doing a lot better now, moving down that road, but continues to not only for her recovery does she need prayer, but Chuck and the kids and, and just all of the logistics that are involved in something like that. And keep her mother up in prayer as well. Sandy is in that. Uh, Mandy's father just had a lung transplant about three weeks ago, and he's been having issues with that. So just a lot going on with that family. Gina Romero asked for prayer of traveling mercies for her granddaughter, Savannah. Uh, Sherry asked for prayer. Um, Roman's mom, we, we, we were getting the prayer request. She was in surgery. Well, she went to be with the Lord last Tuesday. Funeral's going to be a week from this Friday, and it's going to be in Long Beach. But nonetheless, we need to keep that family up in prayer. Joanna asked for prayer as her parents drive back to Canada, and her mom is not feeling well. Um, Pam asked for prayer for her husband, Mike. He has an arbitration case with a former employer. Um, she had an eye injury that apparently the Lord did do a work in, and then she had oral surgery. Was it today or yesterday? Yes. And she can't talk because she had oral surgery. Bernice, uh, we need to lift Bernice up in prayer. Most of you know Gina and Bernice, and we have been praying for her, but she's just been dealing with a lot of hardship concerning her health. And so um, Gina and Bernice uh, serve in children's ministry and hospitality, but we just need to lift them up and that the Lord would do a work. I know she's been in a lot of pain. Maria Macias asked for prayer for her brother's relationship with his daughter, that the Lord would do a work and and restore that. Also, she's asked for prayer for her husband, Alfred, who we've been praying for quite a while. Uh, he had a serious stroke, and he's still dealing with the repercussions of that, and that we need to lift that up in prayer and continue or pray that God would continue a, a good work. Um, Donna asked for prayer for her friend, uh, Livia. Um, she was in a car accident, and so we just need to lift that up. Um, Stephanie asked for prayer for her niece, Victoria. She was in a car accident as well in which one person died and three people are seriously injured. And so um, the person that died is, uh, they were a group of people from, from her school. The person that died is from Germany, and so his father is traveling out here, so you can imagine the difficulty in that. Annie asked for prayer. Andre's sister, she went to be with the Lord. Uh, Darlene Amador asked for prayer for her uncle Ray. He's 93, but they've given him about three to five days of life. And then Matt and Sarah asked for prayer for traveling mercies as they're 
on the road. I accidentally erased it, so I don't know a whole lot more than that. They're heading east somewhere, though, but just pray that God would watch over them. Let's pray. Father, once again, as we come before you, we just lift up these prayer requests, and we just pray, God, for your hand to move in the midst of them. That, Lord, people would look to you, and as they look to you, they would see, Father, you do a work in their lives. And so, Father, we thank you that you are a gracious God, that you are a good God, that you are a God who watches over and cares for his people, that, Lord, as you valued us and placed the value upon us through your cross, I just pray, Father, that we would see that we are all valued in your sight. And so I thank you, Lord, for my daughter and son-in-law and granddaughter, that you brought them home safely. And I just pray, Father, for the good work that you want to do in them and through them back where they're at in upstate New York. I thank you that they found a church that they liked on Sunday. And just pray, Father, that they would get rooted and grounded in your house. I pray for those who did receive the Lord this Easter, Father, that they would flourish in their Christian lives, that they would not stay static, but they would continue to move forward in service to you. And then, Lord, we lift up Mandy to you. And I just pray, Father, that she would continue this work of healing and and that, Lord, you would even restore her back to being at full capacity for the ministries that you've given her to her husband and to her children. Father, I lift up uh, Savannah. We thank you, Lord, that she did make it safely to her destination and just pray, Father, while we look forward to that time when she comes back with, with Gina and Tony. And so, Lord, just bless her, watch over her, and keep her. Father, I lift up Roman and his family during this difficult time, the passing of a loved one. I just pray, Father, that you would enable Roman, Lord, as your witness to that family. And we pray, Father, for the good work that you want to do amongst them. Lord, I lift up Joanna's parents and pray, Father, as they travel back to Canada, they would do so safely. I pray they more than likely have even arrived there by now. But I pray for her mother, Lord, that you would heal her of this, uh, of, of this cold that she has. Lord, I lift up Mike Arias to you, and I just pray that you would go before him in this arbitration case. And Father, we just pray for your will to come to pass. I pray, Father, for Pam, and thank you, Lord, for her eye injury, that you have healed her. And I pray for this oral surgery, Lord, that there would be a quick restoration and healing in her life as well. Lord, we lift up our sister Bernice to you, and Lord, she's been in pain for so long. And I pray, Father, that you would heal her and that, Lord, you would restore her back to full health. Lord, I lift up Maria's brother in the relationship with his daughter and pray that you would do a work of restoration there, that, Father, we would just see you enter in and, and do this great work. I pray for her brother's walk with you, that you would strengthen him and enable him in it, and, Father, it would be through that that we would see a healing done. I pray for Alfred, and I thank you for the fellowship that we're able to have with him, and just pray, Father, that you would continue that work of, of healing in his life as well. Lord, I lift up uh, Donna's friend and just pray as she was in this car accident that you would minister to her and meet her in the midst of it. I pray for Stephanie and her niece Victoria, Lord, and just how hard that is. And uh, that young man and his family who passed away in it. There's three other people who are severely injured that you would minister to them. And then, Father, I pray in the midst of all this that you would give Victoria peace about all that's gone on. Lord, I lift up Andre's Andre's sister Mary's family and just pray, Father, as she has gone to be with you, that you would bless them and that you would do a work of healing amongst them. Father, I pray for Darlene's uncle, Ray. I I don't know where he is at with you, but I just pray, Father, that you would reveal reveal yourself to him, and Lord, and we would see this man as he even has just a matter of days more than likely to live. See, Father, this triumphal entry into your kingdom. And then, Lord, I pray for Matt and Sarah that they would travel well. I pray that you would be with them and their children, I pray, Father, that you would bring them home safely to us as well. So we lift them up to you and just pray, God, that you'd be with them in that car and you'd bless their time together. And so once again, we just thank you, Lord, for these prayers that you've given us. Pray, Father, that you would move and bless in your people's lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Gospel of John, chapter 6, starting at verse 1, it says, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is in the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. 
One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So starting out in the first couple of verses tonight, we're going to have a little bit of a history lesson, some things that are familiar and maybe some things that aren't. Jesus, he had just finished telling the Jews who he is. We saw that in the previous chapter, and he was speaking of how he is equal with the Father in in so many different ways, equal in power, equal in authority, and, and equal in nature. And he's proclaiming to us his deity so that the things that he is doing will see that truly these things come from the hand of God. And he was offering validations for those things as well through the witness, through the signs, and through the scriptures. He has been in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is in the region of Judea, which is in southern Israel. Now, he's left that area because the Jews sought to kill him, and it's not time for that at this point. He travels back to his home in Galilee. Galilee is a region in northern Israel, and that would be where Nazareth is. In Matthew, we are told that some of the events that occurred that are there that lend towards why Jesus is going to the other side of the sea and all. And so while he is there, he's rejected. He's rejected by his hometown. It's that point that we can so easily come to as we're sharing the gospel, as we make a commitment to Christ. Those people who are close to us can be the people who, well, their rejection can do the most damage. I know that when my wife and I came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, It doesn't seem like my relationship with my family has been the same really ever since. I know my father, my father even blamed my wife more than he blamed me for that. And uh, and it was a hard thing to deal with. But you know what? Christianity, Christianity's hard. It can be uncomfortable at times. But you know what? We're saved. And so we continue to move forward in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so... He was rejected there, and we're told in Matthew that he did no mighty works there. Why? Because they weren't believers. They didn't believe. Not so much that they weren't believers, but there was no element of belief. And so works within themselves, miracles within themselves, if they're not going to foster belief, then really, even with Christ, it was just all a a show. And it was a show for absolutely no reason. Jesus' miracles were designed to foster belief and faith in people so that they would grow in the knowledge of who he is. After the rejection at Nazareth, he heads northeast to the city of Tiberias. When my wife and I went to Israel, it was the first place that we stayed. We were right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Sometimes the Sea of Galilee is called the Sea of Tiberias, and we were in that city. It's just south of Capernaum, and it's a beautiful place, the hotel that we were in. Uh, we were up on, I don't remember what floor, I think it was the fifth floor, and you could look out our balcony and you could see all the way through to the other side. And so I'm just up there and you're, you're just kind of thinking, there was a point in history. If I was here, now I couldn't be there because I was on the fifth floor of a hotel, but I don't think they had five floor hotels back then. But if, if I was here just during that one period in history, I would see Jesus and his, his apostles take out in a boat over that sea. And it's just kind of an amazing thought. And as you look at the other side of the sea, the Gadarenes in that area over there, that's where Christ fed the 5,000. Actually, he was a little bit north of the Gadarenes, the feeding of the 5,000, but multiple times. Matter of fact, it was one night, one stormy night, if you could see that far out to sea, you would have been able to see the Lord Jesus Christ walk on the water. And it's kind of an amazing thing just to be there, to be there and to realize that these things transpired in that area. Now, the just shall live by faith, so you don't have to be there to believe these things, but it's kind of a neat thing to see that come to pass. And so after the rejection of Nazareth, he heads northeast to the city of Tiberias at the Sea of Galilee. 
Again, verse 1, after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the, uh, went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. So after these things, there's been a lot of things that have been going on. We've seen the healings. We've seen the healings of the nobleman's son, the paralytic man. We saw his confrontation with the Jews, just the beginning of so many other ones. There was the rejection again by his hometown. And then Matthew also tells us, and I think this was a big reason for his crossing the sea, maybe to be alone a little bit, it was the death of John the Baptist. John the Baptist had just been previously killed. And so the Lord, we see, we'll, we'll see it in a few, probably a few months as we enter into chapter 11, but when Lazarus died it, and then he saw everybody mourning, it caused the Lord to weep. The Lord was fully God, but the Lord was fully man. And so the emotions that you experience are the same emotions that Christ experiences. He does not have the influence of sin, but nonetheless, the death of a loved one, it touched his heart. God has created us that way to mourn for those whom we love. And so, in the midst of all of these things, he's been busy about doing the work of ministry. And so, the Lord, the Lord seeks solitude. It's kind of another dynamic of, our, of who we are. You guys, through your graciousness, gave my wife and myself for Christmas. I don't remember if it was Christmas or birthday. It might have been my birthday, and I just kind of took her along anyway. I don't remember. But um, we went up to Big Bear for that week. And it was just a really, it was really nice just to not have to go anywhere, not have to do anything. We kind of just got out of bed. When we got out of bed, we kind of milled around. And some days we went off and had breakfast at a... Uh, at a restaurant up there. Other days, we just had brought some stuff and just kind of ate there and just kind of, just, you know, if you asked us what we did that week, nothing. Just spent time together. But again, sometimes it's so necessary to do nothing, just to, just to recharge and to be restored. You need to do that within a marriage and you need to do that as an individual as well. So a couple reasons why the Lord may have headed over to the other side there. First was just simply lots going on, rest for his disciples and himself. Now, if I was to tell you to walk from Jerusalem up to Galilee, it would be like you walking from here up to L.A. And so that's a bit of a walk. And Jesus seems like he was constantly doing that. And as he was doing that, he was going throughout the regions ministering the gospel. So there was a lot of physical effort that was involved. In ministry, there's physical effort that is involved. And I can tell you all about my efforts, but most of you who are involved know full well. A lot of you work a full-time job and come here and minister at the church. And that's just the work of ministry. And that's what God has called us to, and that's what God has enabled us in. In Mark chapter 6, verse 30 through 31, it says, Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all the things which they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest. For there, a rest for a while, for there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So, man, mankind, we need that rest from time and time again. The Lord's work can be tiring, and it should be tiring. The thing about it is, though, you get tired in ministry. It's when you get tired of ministry that there's a problem. We should get tired in ministry. If you get tired of ministry, then truly there's a problem. This rest here was more probably what we would call a retreat, time for resting, but also instructing. Second reason for him pulling aside, he's in hostile country, and even the king is after him. Herod has heard of Jesus' ministry and starting to find it very interesting. He's taking notice. Now, again, this is the same one who has done so much damage. He beheaded John the Baptist in Luke chapter 9, verse 9. Herod said, John, I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. Third reason could possibly be, and I would imagine so, at least a big part of it, is just simply the execution of John. Now, John the Baptist said in John, the, the Apostle John's Gospel in John 3.30, he, Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. And so he did. He was taken out of the picture. And again, we need to look at it spiritually from that aspect as well. And that John the Baptist, if you recall, the last of the Old Testament type of prophets. He had the pleasure of ushering in the Lord. The Lord's in the Old Testament prophet. 
no longer necessary anymore. God in former times spoke to us by the prophets as in this present day spoken to us by the Son. And so you've got that picture of John truly leaving the picture because Christ must fill the picture. It's been said, though, concerning John the Baptist, I don't recall where I got this quote from, but it's been said that it's better to have a head like John the Baptist and lose it than to have a worldly one and keep it. And so John, John gave his life, obviously, for this understatement of the year, for a worthy cause. His life, he understood that his life was God's. Now, the Herod who was in power at this time is Herod Antipas or Herod the Tetrarch. He was a son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the first of the Herods. He was the Herod who was in power when Christ was born. He was the one who was very um, very prideful and very concerned about this king being born. And he's the one who had the young children executed, Herod the Great was. Now, upon his, Herod the Great, upon Herod the Great's death, Rome divided the area of Israel into four parts. That's where you get the Tetrarch from. That means a ruler of a fourth part. Herod was appointed governor over the region of Galilee. Herod Antipas was. His brothers had their area. There were three others, and they had their areas. And actually, they weren't all brothers. One, I believe, was an uncle. Upon the death of um, a couple of them, Pilate took over, actually Archelaus, Herod Archelaus, Pontius Pilate took over as governor of Judea. I think Caesar pretty much had enough of, of the Herods at that time. Verse 2, Then a great multitude followed him, followed Christ, because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. And so he's the new sensation right now. This guy's doing miracles. And so what they're concerned about, and we'll see this all the way through to the end of the chapter, is what are you able to do for me here and now? Or at least the majority of them are like that. And so Christ and his, his apostles, they're the mindset, let's pull aside, let's get some alone time. But the people aren't going to do that. So the Sea of Galilee, it's a pretty big, pretty big lake is what it is. And again, you can look, I, I don't remember, I think it's a good mile wide. And as Christ would go across, you could have people follow him in boat, or you could walk along the land. It'd probably be a good half day's walk they were good walkers again back there. might have been a little bit more, but they could walk around the lake and come to the other side. It'd be a good journey, and they would definitely be tired and hungry by the time they got there. And so they took the boat across, but this great multitude is following. Great multitude means very large. We get an idea, as we're told, that there's 5,000 men, but that does not include women and children. So there's quite a few people. could be over 10,000 here. In Mark chapter 6, verse 33, it says, But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran there on foot from all the cities, and they arrived before them and came together to him. So they're excited about it. They're excited about what Christ is going to do next, and so there's an opportunity. But the thing about this is, and again, verse 2, the great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. They were looking for the signs. They were looking for the wow factor. Every student of church growth knows the world will run to where their worldly passions are met. If you want to draw numbers just for the sake of drawing numbers, cater to people where their passions are and they'll come. It's been said, if you want to be on the best seller list and maybe even the best seller of all time, Write a how-to-get-rich-quick book while losing weight, and the world will flock to it. Because what does it do? It caters to their passions. And so what these people are doing, or at least what they're attempting to do, is to see Jesus, but for all the wrong reasons. They're not seeing him for Messiah or any spiritual reason, but for all of their worldly reasons. The idea is, what are you able to do for me right now? Well, when we saw Jesus' triumphal entry, they were yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, save now, save now. But that wasn't the reason that Christ was entering into Jerusalem. And so when those people realized that he wasn't going to restore the kingdom, expel Rome and, and bring Israel back to prominence, those same people that yelled Hosanna are the same ones who would later yell, crucify him, crucify him. Even here, if you turn over, well, I don't know if you need to turn your page, I had to turn my page, but in the same chapter, chapter 6, but verse 66, 
when the people realized that Christ wasn't going to entertain them, provide for them how they desired to be provided for, it says, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. They didn't get what they wanted. And that's part of the problem when you're catering to people's desires and using that as the purpose for your growth or the, the reason for your growth because as you attract them that way, that's going to be the way that you keep them. And people are always going to want more, they're always going to want bigger, and they're always going to want better. And what do we offer here at this church? We offer just the simple preaching of God's Word, the giving of God's Word that really takes care of everything that we need. Verse 3, And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. So there was probably a lot of people that were headed down to Jerusalem for the Passover. So there was probably more people than usual even in that area. Verse 5, Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? So this is going to be an object lesson for them. And it's kind of an interesting thing of chapter 6. He starts getting into a little bit more to discipleship. We're able to glean from the teachings that the Lord was giving to his, uh, um, giving to his apostles, preparing them for the church age, and those concepts we're able to gleam off of, and we're able to make application as well. We've got a great one here tonight. But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little." And so what he's saying here is it, it makes no sense. We, there's just no way. And so 2,000 years later as we're here, we know that nobody went off to the store and bought bread. It, it, just, wasn't, it just wasn't possible. Now this miracle, this miracle has pretty specific meaning in that this is a miracle, it's the one miracle that is mentioned in all four Gospels. Being as it is mentioned in all four Gospels, now you need to pay attention to all of them, but God really has something. He's really making a point for the church age. And so Matthew, Matthew chapter 14, is where we see Matthew's version of it. Matthew gives a little bit more detail, so I'll be referring back to that as well. And Matthew chapter 14, verses 15 through 16 says, When it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a deserted place, and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. It's kind of a picture of the church age. We're supposed to give them something to eat. I mean, I could go sit down next to you and we can wait to Christ to come and to teach us tonight, but that's not how he works. How does he work? He, he works through his people. And so he, he understands, obviously, Christ understands that these are the men that are going to be leading the church forward. And so it's time to prepare them. It's time to prepare them because there are real needs here that are before them right now. And, and what we need to see that as there's this group of, we'll just use the number that the Bible uses, 5,000 people, you've got to give them something or they're going to perish. And as I go, Christ would theoretically say, you've got to continue to give the people something or they're going to perish. They're going to perish spiritually. And so right away they start thinking as the world thinks, well, hey, there's not enough money to provide for these people. And I would imagine even if they had enough money, there probably wasn't enough in the storehouse in order to feed all of these people. So what Christ is teaching them is dependency upon them. The only way you're ever going to be able to provide for people, if you depend upon me, if you come to me and you seek me out, then I will do a work through you and you will provide for those people or you will see the provision for those people. So what Christ is doing here, and it's very important for us to see because you can so easily gloss over this and you can do the same thing that those people were doing, just looking at the feeding of the 5,000. Well, there's so much more than just feeding of the 5,000. It's how the Lord goes about it. And so it's more than just the wow factor of the multiplication of fish and barley. It's all that the Lord was teaching. And so what the Lord is doing here is he's setting standards and he's establishing principles 
for the methods that man would use in the ministry to the people, or at least man in the church age will use to the people that will inhabit and fill those churches. And so it's directly applicable to us even here tonight. And so disciples did good right off. They recognized these people, these people have a need. These people have a need. Big part of the problem in the Civil War when you have an army that is large, is providing for that army. When, um, when the northern army would travel, you, you, you may have a, a group of men, let's just say that we're marching, and I'm just using loose numbers here, but let's just say the group of men that were marching were two miles long, you would need a wagon train of supplies ten miles long. And that was kind of the amazing thing with Sherman's march through the south. He did something very unique of the day. He marched through the south and he lived off of the land. And that made his march possible because he would have had his supply train stretched way thin. It would have been vulnerable to attack. And if they would have been able to cut that off, they probably would have been able to do great damage to his army. And so now all of a sudden, what happens if I told you? What happens if I told hospitality tonight? We got 5,000 people here tonight. Hopefully you brought enough donuts. Um, these people have a greater need than just donuts. This is that which is going to keep them going. But not only do they recognize the great need, and this is important, they also recognize their limitations. Where are we going to get the resources in order to feed 5,000 people? Well, spiritually speaking, where are you going to get the resources to, to minister to two people? Again, it's magnified so that we, we see the lesson, but the lesson, it applies to your family. The lesson, it applies to whatever your ministry may be or whoever it is that God has placed upon your heart to minister to. So first of all, John doesn't mention it here, but they came up with an unacceptable solution because what were they doing? They were looking at their limitations. They're looking, okay, you give them something to eat. I got to give them something to eat? and I've got all these people, what am I able to give to all of these people? Again, in Matthew 14, verse 15, when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place, and the hour is already late. Send them away. Send them away. That's their solution. Lord, we need to send them away. And that's unacceptable for Christ. Now, Christ knows the heart. We saw in chapter, uh, chapter 2, the last part, he knows the heart of all men. And so he knows the heart of these people. And these are going to be a big part of the people. And we looked at verse 66, who are going to end up going away when Christ doesn't provide how they want him to provide. But nonetheless, he's saying, you've got people there that have need. It's going to be up to you to provide for them regardless of your ability. So Jesus, in essence, tells them, this isn't an option. This isn't of me. Matthew 14, verse 16, but Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. And then he looks right at him and says, you give them something to eat. And so the principle he established here, the standard that was set, man, man is to take his humble offering to the Lord for the purpose of ministry, and the Lord, the Lord will make it happen. He'll provide the provision. And that's the picture that we're starting to see form here. You see them, and, and they're coming to Christ, but Christ is putting the responsibility upon them. But he's putting the responsibility upon them, understanding that the foundation of that responsibility is going to be their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've got a group of people here and they have a legitimate need, and that need needs to be taken care of. And so we can say, well, you know what? Go away. Go, go, go find somebody else. No, they, God's brought them to the church. And just as surely as those people followed Christ, make no mistake, that's of the Lord. And so now I've got I've to provide them. So I can tell the Lord, we need to pray to the Lord, but the Lord ultimately is going to put it upon us. We've got to put forth the effort. But we put forth the effort, the first thing, our efforts have to start in faith in Christ and what Christ is going to do, what Christ is able to do, and how Christ wants to reach these people. So the method that we learned here is 
is that we're not to be manufacturers of ministry. They're realizing we can't manufacture ministry. We, we, we can't go and, and produce enough bread for these people. Half these guys are fishermen. They're understanding. We can't go out in the ocean and catch a bunch of fish and expect to feed them. Uh, that, I'm surprised that wasn't mentioned here. I mean, that would have been my first thought, especially if I'm a fisherman. I'll go out there and try and catch a bunch of fish. But they knew that was impossible. And so as all of that's not happening. Well, we're not to be manufacturers of ministry, but the big part of the lesson here is what Christ is teaching them is, is to be distributors of ministry. What did Paul say? We just celebrated communion last Friday. I, I delivered to you that which was first delivered to me. And, and, and that's the essence of truly what ministry is. What do, what do I have? Well, through what God has given me, through years of studying the scriptures, sitting in Bible studies and all of these things, and then putting a study together this week, in essence, I'm just delivering to you what Christ first gave to me. Now, if the source of this was Mike, that would be a bad thing. You don't need what Mike has to deliver. You need what God has to deliver to the church at Ontario tonight because he's going to meet each and every person where we're at and the things that are going on in your lives. See, if it's manufacturers, if we're to be manufacturers of ministry, then there's going to be very little that we accomplish because we're just simply so limited. But if we're distributors, then we have an endless supply based upon what God wants to do. We'll always have resources to accomplish that which God has called us to do. And so it's important to understand what God wants to do. They know they want to feed those people. And so if God is the manufacturer of ministry and we are the distributors of ministry, then you can just work that through and understand ministry truly takes place when divine resources meet human need. And so the things that we have here, sometimes I walk through this church and I'm amazed. I, I kind of think to myself, where did all this come from? I mean, it came slowly and over a period of years, but God's done an amazing work. And he's provided for us as we have needed, and, and God has been faithful in doing that. Now, he's been faithful in doing that throughout all of our existence. And so human need, human need is the essence of true ministry. Now, there's four ways that man can respond when faced with human need. And need to pay attention to these things because you've probably been faced with human need at different times, and you've probably responded each and every one of these ways. The first way man can respond when faced with human need is he can acknowledge it, but he can ignore it. We can spend the rest of our life secure in our salvation and fellowship with our fellow Christians and ignore all of the need that is outside of these doors. It's what the majority of Christians do. When was the last time that you shared your faith? When was the last time that you shared the Lord Jesus Christ with somebody who was perishing outside of these doors? We saw it in our prayer request tonight. There was about four people that either are no longer with us or are not going to be with us for much longer. Human need is great out there. Now in the flesh, you're right. What can I do for them? But in the spirit, we know the life that God gives in the spirit. Not that they're going to get healed, although maybe they will, but spiritually healed for sure. What does the Bible tell us to do? In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3-4, through 4, it says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better or more important than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, that you need to work your salvation out, you need to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, but also for the interest of others. You need to see other people grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ as well. So an unbeliever, we see human need there, and we've ignored it in the past, but no more. We need to share Christ with them. When you see a born-again believer who's not really walking strongly in Christ, maybe you've ignored them in the past, but no longer you're going to enter into their lives and you're going to see that person discipled. You see somebody sitting by themselves in the fellowship area. You're going to get past yourself. You're going to humble yourself because the easy thing to do is just to kind of float like a dead fish downstream, but you're going to get over that and you're going to minister to the person. So number one, 
ignore it when faced with human need. Number two, when faced with human need, we can take advantage of the opportunity and benefit ourselves. You see this all the time, and you've heard of the so-called ministries that play off people's desires for the Lord and use this to make money, to build power, and to take advantage of people. They'll have at some point to give a, a, uh, an account of themselves before God for, for doing that. But they look for the opportunity to meet human need as a way for recognition, for positions, for titles, for honors, and for privileges. It's exactly what the religious leaders of Jesus' day were doing. It's why he rebuked them. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 5, we're told, the religious community, the Pharisees, but all the works they do to be seen by men, they make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They become a big show to show they believe their spirituality, but in actuality, they're doing nothing for anybody else. A third way that we can react and relate to human need is to know about it and just simply don't do anything. It's the responsibility that we have to not have a hard heart for tasks, but a pliable one for people. It's the one in James. It's going up and praying for somebody, but not taking care of that physical need as well. Jesus didn't come and go directly to the cross. He did ministry that was motivated by love. He could have just came and went to the cross and paid the price for sin, but he ministered to people. He was hands-on with people. He met people where they were at. He met people in the midst of their sin. In Luke chapter 10, verses 29 through 31, he gave that parable of the Good Samaritan. And he spoke of that man who, as others, the religious community bypassed. They saw that man as he was laying by the side of the road. That guy had need. But the other people understood that need. They recognized. Now, these are a little bit different from the people who ignore the need. They acknowledge the need, but they just don't do anything about it. Somebody really should come here and help this man over here. I hope somebody does something for him. He looks like he's going to die over here. I'll go off and pray, pray that God brings somebody into his life. And again, we can so be like that, but maybe you're the person that God has called in that person's life that particular day. And so that one man, that good Samaritan, was a mortal enemy of that guy, but he was somebody who got over himself for the benefit of this person. Or fourthly, we can respond to human need as Paul responded to Jesus' call in his life, Acts 9-6, Lord, what do you want me to do? And you have to make that determination. And it can so be a, a hard thing to make that determination because emotion so easily enters into it. But Lord, as far as that person and, and that need that is there, what do you want me to do? Jesus says, you provide. And so what are they doing? How in the world are we going to provide? Well, Andrew's got an eye for the work of ministry. He's not selling the Lord short. Now, I don't think he understands everything here, but in verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Really, there's probably a whole study just in that. But here, this man sees, okay, well, here's our resource. This is what we have, Lord. I, I know it's greater, but I understand what you're able to do. And so he, he comes and he, he takes, now when I say takes it, didn't steal it from the kid, but the kid gave it to him. And, and looking at this meal, barley, people don't eat barley. That's animal feed for the most part. It's edible, but it's animal feed. The only person that would eat barley would be a poor person. And more than likely, because of the fish, he was from a family that lived close to that area. And, and again, probably poor, maybe the son of a fisherman, who knows. But the way I look at that, I don't look at it just as the kid. Now, when I was a kid, if I had lunch for the day, where did I get it from? I got it from mom. And so here you've got people just going about doing what they do every day. A mother, because of the love of her son, She's just doing what God has called her to do. Now, somebody in that culture, a woman in that culture, would be thought of as almost a second-class citizen. But you know what? What she's been given to do, she's going to do. So she's going to minister to the son. But because she ministered to the son, she didn't understand. She was going to be part of the feeding of 5,000 people. She was going to have a part in the miracle of God. And can you imagine when that boy came home and said, Mom, these guys came and, and they took the food that you gave me? 
and they brought it to this one guy, and he just kept filling up baskets and baskets and baskets. Mom, you fed over 5,000, or you had a part in feeding over 5,000 people today. And again, it's an amazing concept that I'm not always going to understand the end result of my ministry. As God has called me, and as I'm faithful, they may just think, well, I just ministered to this one person, and, you know, it was nice ministering to the one person, but I don't even know if he truly made a commitment to Christ, and who knows? Well, maybe that one person is going to go off and be used in an even greater way by the Lord. I don't know that. Maybe one of the people that raised their hands on Sunday is going to end up being an evangelist that God is going to use for revival before he comes back. We don't know, and we'll never know those things, but... But that's okay. We need to have a compassionate heart when faced with human need and have that be the catalyst of the Lord moving in the midst of ministry. Throughout the Gospels, the thing that preceded Jesus doing something was almost always compassion. Looking upon the people and seeing the lost state that they were in. So, but this he said, verse 6, to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him and said, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, and this is really an amazing turning point. This man has tremendous faith in this. There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? And Jesus said, make the people sit down. And the answer to his question is, it's enough. Whatever you have available, it may not make sense to you, but it's enough. This is what God brought to the table that day, and we're going to see for God, it is enough. We're always looking for ourselves. Is this enough for me? No, it's not enough for me to feed all these people. But for God, that offering, it was enough. Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. And again, the essence of ministry. Christ came, and he gave to the disciples, and then the disciples gave to the needy. And so as God has called you to a work of ministry, again, whatever it might be, you go to Christ, Christ is going to give to you, and then you will give to those people that he has called you to. And if you do, if you follow through in that, it says that they had as much as they wanted, just as much as was necessary. Now, there wasn't extra. And you'll say, well, Pastor Mike, you just read to the end, and I know there's that. No, there wasn't extra. It says, so when they were filled, verse 12, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments, the little bits that remain, so that nothing is lost. Why? Because these fragments are going to be important here in a little boat trip that they're about to take across the, back across the water. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled a basket for every apostle, basically 12 baskets. So you're going to have 12 object lessons next week with the fragments of five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. So we look at this. What's available to us? What's available to us for the work of ministry? What are the resources that we have available to us as distributors of the Lord's ministry? Well, the Bible makes it very clear. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 7, you have the riches of his grace. That means no matter what you do with the right intent before the Lord, you can't mess it up. You can't mess it up. You may make a mistake, but God, because he's gracious, as we do the work of ministry, as we believe we hear from him and move forward, you have the riches of his grace. Now just think, the riches of his grace, not the riches of my grace, but the riches of God's grace. Secondly, Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, you have his riches in glory. And that God has called you to do these things for the motivation and the purpose of glorifying His holy name. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, you have a God who is rich in mercy. This is a God who desires for all to be saved. Romans chapter 11, verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. This is beyond us. And then Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, you have the unsearchable riches of Christ. When it comes to method of ministry, if we conform to his standards, then people are truly ministered to. And this lesson was given so long ago, but you see it's included in all four Gospels because God was wanting to get our attention of the lesson that was to be learned here. 
so that we would take these things and we would apply them to our lives. Or apply them to our, well, apply them to our lives, apply them to the, the work that God has called us to do. Verse 14, Then those men, I would imagine those men or the apostles, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, you had John the Baptist. John the Baptist is now gone. Now what you have is the New Testament witness. They have seen the miracles, and now what are they doing? They're referring to the Word of God. The New Testament is yet to be written, so the Word of God is the Old Testament understanding who Christ is. What they're referring to is the prophet like Moses who was to come. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 17 through 19. And the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him and it shall be. And so that prophecy was given so that we would see that this is the prophet fulfillment of this prophecy. And it says, my, I will put my words in his mouth that you would hear the words of Christ. And as you would hear the words of Christ, we know what the words of Christ are able to do. It didn't say to eat the bread of Christ. It didn't say to seek a healing from Christ. Now, Christ did do those things, and those things are important. Don't get me wrong. But it's always got to lead to the Word of God. People can come into the church and be excited about the church, but a lot of times when they find out it's just the preaching of the Word of God, they're going to go somewhere else where their physical needs somehow are taken care of or their physical wants or desire. I really believe that we have new people that come in and don't come back because the guy stood up there and spoke for 50 minutes. They're not used to that. There were no video games. There were no movies. You know, there was no this. There were no that. And there's a lot of people who aren't going to do that. And just as it says here in verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with them. Why? Because there was no more show, there was no more miracles, there was no more multiplication of the bread. At some point, it gets down to the bracts, tacks of God's Word. And it's the Word of God that we need to value as much as we do as our daily sustenance. Father, once again, we just thank you that you have given us these lessons. But Lord, it's not good enough just to receive a lesson. We must do the lesson. And so, Father, I pray that you would make it real in the lives of the people who are here, that we would understand, Lord, that you have blessed us and you'll bless us even so much more, but not to increase our comfort, not to increase our status, but, Father, just so much more to glorify you for reaching more people. And so, Father, I pray that you would enable us in this ministry first, enable us in this ministry to see your reasons and your purposes but then, Lord, enable us in the ministry to apply these things as well. So, Father, again, we just thank you for this evening. I pray for those who have come out that you would go before them, that you would bless them, that you would bring them home safely. I pray for those whom we prayed for tonight, Lord, that you would do a work in their lives, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.